0: It's good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, I invite you to take your copy of Scriptures and uh, turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and uh, if you haven't been here with us, we are currently in a series in the Gospel of Mark, and so we are right now in Mark chapter 8, we're just beginning Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading for us this morning verses 1 to 21, Mark chapter 8. And I'll read for us verses 1 to 21. After I read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll consider what God has to say to us from His Word, okay? So Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called His disciples to Him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with Me now three days and have nothing to eat. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. They had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And, and, and the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy and the grace and mercy you show us even now in being able to gather together and being able to read your word and to hear it. Lord, may we not take this privilege for granted. And Lord, we pray that even now as we hear your word, that we would be attentive and ready for what you have for us. And Lord, I pray, especially for the presence and the power of your spirit. Lord, I pray that what is spoken would only be true, that you would guard us from error. And Lord, we are thankful that your word is truth. And we pray that that truth now would invade our own hearts and lives, that we would be changed for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. When in the Gospel of Mark, we have been walking through Mark, which is essentially a biography of the life of Jesus, and in walking through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that people respond to Jesus in a number of different ways. Uh, we've seen that there are those who reject Him, uh, there are those who show initial signs of faith, uh, but then fall away and don't follow, and then there are those who truly believe and they follow Jesus. One of the things we see, though, that is that among those who truly believe and do, in fact, follow Jesus, that the faith they express in Jesus is not a perfect faith. In fact, one of the things we see in Scripture as a whole is that saving faith is not perfect faith. It is imperfect in many ways, yet it is real and legitimate. We especially see this in our text this morning. We especially see this in the lives of the disciples, that they possess a real but an imperfect faith in Jesus. And what I want us to see this morning is that although the disciples possess a real but imperfect faith, Jesus fights for their faith. He is, in fact, in our passage this morning, contending for their faith. Now, this is the main idea that we'll see in our text is that Jesus contends for the disciples' faith by matching their surprising unbelief with lavish provision. Jesus contends for the disciples' faith by matching their surprising unbelief with lavish provision. We'll consider this in three parts first, their surprising unbelief. Second, the lavish provision, and third, the reality that Jesus contends for faith. First of all, surprising unbelief. I'm going to read the first four verses again for us, okay? So look there in chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, and we read these words. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I've labeled this section surprising unbelief. But on the one hand, the unbelief of the disciples here that we see in our text, I think it's fair to say it doesn't surprise us. In fact, on the face of it, just reading those four verses that I read to you, it seems that the disciples find themselves in an almost impossible situation. Consider the disciples' situation here. There was a great crowd. The text tells us that there was 4,000 people gathered around Jesus. And the crowd had been with Jesus and the disciples for three days now. And they had run out of food. So 4,000 people have been there for three days. They've run out of food. And not only have they run out of food, but they're in a desolate place. They're far away from their homes. They're far away from any towns where they could get some food. And the text tells us that their hunger was great enough and their location remote enough that if Jesus sent them home, they would have fainted on the way. And so what are the disciples to do? You know, oftentimes... Uh, Christians have a practice of gathering together at special times for maybe extended Bible teaching and maybe, you know, Christians will gather together and go to a Bible conference or some Christian conference and they'll get good teaching from, uh, you know, uh, good Bible teachers and they'll sing songs together and that sort of thing. This, this last year, one of the things that we did as elders here at Berea is uh, we went to Together for the Gospel, which was a a conference that was held in Louisville, Kentucky, and they brought in a lot of great Bible teachers, and we sang, and we heard great Bible teaching for three or four days, and uh, it was just a great time of fellowship with other people who were there. And so what we see here in Mark chapter 8 is essentially like the greatest Bible teaching conference you could ever imagine. All right? Jesus, with 4,000 people gathered there, and he's teaching them. Jesus is teaching. There's no breakout sessions, right? Because nobody would go to them. Nobody wants to hear anybody else except Jesus, right? So Jesus is teaching them for three days the Bible, and now they've run out of food at the end of the conference, and there's nothing to eat, And they're far away from anywhere where they can get food. And if they go home now, they're going to faint. This is a conference that's on the brink of disaster, right? I mean, you can imagine the headline Jesus leads 4,000 people out into the wilderness, and hundreds faint. And so, what are the disciples to do? Well, in verse 4, you see their question. They asked Jesus, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, on the face of it, again, it seems like a reasonable question given the situation that they find themselves in. But it is apparent from the rest of the passage here that the disciples were not simply inquiring about how Jesus was going to pull this off, right? So so this is not a statement of faith on the part of the disciples. Think like you know, there's a sense of anticipation. Okay, Jesus, we're in this tough situation again. Let's see how you're going to do this one, Jesus. Right? No, it's not a statement of anticipation of expectancy to see how God is going to work and how Jesus is going to pull this off. But it is a question of desperation and panic. In fact, we could say that their question is really more like a statement. No one can feed bread to this many people in this desolate place. It is a statement of unbelief. And, 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 and why is it a statement, given their situation, given their circumstances, why is it a, situa- a statement of surprising unbelief? Because given their circumstances, we said, it's almost, it seems like an almost impossible situation. Why is it surprising unbelief? Well, if you've been here for our series in the Gospel of Mark, you might remember that in chapter 6, so just about a chapter and a half behind where we are right now, Jesus fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. Right? In Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 44, and we spent one Sunday looking at that passage, Jesus and His disciples found themselves in a very similar situation. And Jesus, it wasn't just 4,000 people, but it was 5,000 people, and Jesus miraculously fed them with five loaves of bread and two fish, and there were plenty of leftovers for folks to take home. Now the disciples find themselves in essentially the same situation, although the odds are a little bit more in their favor now, right? Because it's only 4,000 as opposed to 5,000. And it's as though the feeding of the 5,000 never occurred. They don't seem to remember it. They don't reference it. They don't draw reassurance from it. There's no sense, oh, Jesus, we've seen this before. You remember when you fed the 5,000? In fact, it's interesting, some critical commentators, those who don't believe that the Bible is is altogether true, uh, that it was put together by a group of people or formulated over a period of time, and it has errors in it and that sort of thing, and it was kind of mismatched in terms of being put together, certain fables, myths, accounts, and that it has errors in it and fallacies and that sort of thing. Certain critical commentators, when they read the Gospel of Mark and they see the feeding of the 5,000, they see the feeding of the 4,000, they propose that there is no way that this, these can be two separate historical accounts. Okay, that, that it is so improbable that the disciples would witness Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, that then in just a short time, that they would turn around and be faced with 4,000 who need to be fed, and they would, they would face it with utter desperation and panic. And so there's no way that these, these, this could be two historical accounts. In fact... One critic says, and so what they propose is really this is the same historical account being told from two different perspectives, and the details are wrong. Okay, so that's what they propose. And so one critic actually says, quote, the stupid repetition of the question by the disciples is psychologically impossible, end of quote. Now here's my question. Who are these commentators? Because I'd like to meet one of them. Because I'm not a great biblical scholar, but this is not hard for me to understand. This is me. The disciples are me. And and if you have any sense of, of your own heart, you realize that this is you. Slow to believe. Quick to forget. Inclined to distrust God in the face of overwhelming reasons to trust Him. In fact I would say that the critics distrust of the bibles of the biblical text at this point doesn't reveal a deficiency in the scriptures but rather it reveals a deficiency in them in their own superficial and shallow understanding of their own hearts and human nature at large as we read this text, I don't think we should come to this text and say with the question, this is psychologically impossible. There's no way this could happen. How could this happen? But rather we come to this text in knowing our own hearts and knowing the hearts of those that we love and care for. And, and I would say even through pastoral experience that God has given me and being able to minister to others and then examining my own heart, we should come to this and not say psychologically impossible, but we should say rather tragically probable. This is the nature of, Of our hearts to be so quick to forget. But there's an encouragement in this. You know if you're here this morning and you struggle with doubts. When it comes to the Christian faith. Or if you're a Christian and you're here this morning. And you struggle to regularly believe and trust God and His promises and His provision. Then my friends you can praise God that there are texts like this in the Bible. Isn't it great? Isn't it great that there's texts like this in the Bible? That the disciples are, in many ways, put up for us as a model. That they are those who, in spite of all the others disbelieving Christ, they trust Christ and they follow Christ, but, oh, the Bible is so real about their own imperfect faith. That the life of faith is not smooth sailing but it is a fight and it is a struggle. And what we will see here in our text this morning is that Jesus in His grace and in His mercy, He contends for their faith. In fact, God is so gracious and Christ is so gracious with the disciples here that He matches what the critical commentators refer to there as stupid repetition asking this question, even though given what they've seen previously, He matches their stupid repetition of unbelief with extravagant displays of grace. And that leads us to our second point, lavish provision. Look there in verses 5 through 10. We read these words. And Jesus asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people. And to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Manutha. Okay, so here we see um, just quickly what, what's taking place here. Jesus asked them, How many loaves of bread are present? And you see the disciples say seven, so that's a little bit more. Odds, again, are in favor of them, right, as opposed to the feeding of the 5,000. A little bit more than the feeding of the 5,000, which there were only five loaves present there. And then uh, there's a few small fish. We don't know how many, but Jesus prays over the seven loaves and he prays over the few fish. He breaks the bread, he hands it to his disciples, and then the miracle occurs, right? Uh, What we see here in our text is that the bread and the fish are multiplied, and in verse 8, it says that the 4,008, they were satisfied. And in fact, there was so much left over uh, that they were able to collect seven basketfuls of leftovers. Now, we learn a number of things about Christ and His lavish provision from this text. Uh, we learn something about Jesus' lavish provision by who receives, who receives it. Who receives His provision in this passage. It's interesting to contrast, compare and contrast the feeding of the 5,000 with the feeding of the 4,000. There are many similarities, but then there's also differences as well. And one of the differences is the audience. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the audience or the context was Jewish. And those who would have been fed that day would have primarily uh, been Jews. But the feeding of the 4,000, the passage that we've come to here, the context here in Jesus' ministry at this time is in Gentile territory. And so the context was Gentile, and those who would have been receiving the provision that day would have been mostly Gentiles. And so one of the things we learn here about Jesus' lavish and gracious provision is that Jesus' grace and provision is not limited to the Jews. Instead, what we see is that Jesus has taken initiative Himself. He's been proactive to go Himself to Gentile territories, to the Gentiles, and to extend His grace and provision to them as well. And so we see the lavishness of Christ's grace extends beyond racial or cultural barriers. We have a home group that's meeting right now. We have, I think it's six groups this semester, and one of the groups is studying the book Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, which is a great book on international missions. One of the things we gather here from our text is that to be on mission with Jesus is like Jesus to be moved with compassion to take His grace, to take His provision to those who have not yet heard, and for them to have the opportunity to receive His life what we see one of the things about Jesus' gracious lavish provision here he's moving towards those who have not experienced it who have not heard it he's moving towards the gentiles and extending to them his provision but then we also learn something about Jesus' lavish provision by how much they receive how much they receive You see, the point of the leftovers here that we read about in our text is to communicate that Jesus' provision is not simply sufficient, but it is lavish. It is extravagant. It is more than enough. In fact, Jesus emphasizes this point in verses 19 to 21. Skip down further in the passage and look there. In verse 19 we read, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Jesus is showing them that Look, he, he not only provides, but he provides more than enough and they can trust him for even extravagant and lavish provision. And I think, and I, I know we have to be careful here, but I think he's even communicating that truth by the numbers that he's highlighting. Okay? So one of the things, and I just want to put this out there is cause, oh, as a warning, it is, it is dangerous to spiritualize numbers in the Bible when it's not warranted. And some have done that by I don't know if you've heard of Bible code stuff and people read numbers into the Bible and they come up with all kind of wacky stuff, and so I'm not promoting that. But at the same time, there are numbers in the Bible that do have special significance or symbolic meaning. And one of the things we see in the Scriptures is that 12 is a significant number. 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It's a number that represents the totality of God's people. And seven is a significant number because it's a number in the Bible that represents fullness or completion. And so even the numbers that Jesus is highlighting, I think one of the truths he's communicating here is that the leftovers and the number of leftovers that there are reinforce that Jesus is able to fully and completely provide for all the needs of all his people. And he's pointing them to his lavish and extravagant provision. Listen, my friends, if you are a Christian here this morning, if you are trusting in Christ as your only hope of salvation, and you're seeking to follow him and to be his disciple, then I believe this text teaches us, and it is so encouraging to consider, that no matter how much Jesus has given to you, he intends to give you more. Did you get that? No matter how much grace, no matter how much mercy, no matter how much provision you have received from the hand of Christ, He has far more in store and He intends to lavish your life with more. And this is true for the Christian. And even 10,000 years from now, it will be true for us as Christians. The grace of Christ never ends. There's just more and more and more and more. It's extravagant and lavish. This has both physical and spiritual implications. When you think about the physical implications, I know that there must be people even here this morning who ask questions like, how are we going to pay the bills? Or will I be able to get a job? Questions like, if I give sacrificially to support Gospel ministry, will God meet my needs? My friends, when it comes to our needs that we have in life, one of the things that the Scriptures point us to is to trust God, to trust Him that not only is He a provider, but He is lavish and gracious and extravagant in His provision. We're uh, looking at, we also have a home group uh, this semester that's looking at Generous Justice by Tim Keller, which is a book on mercy ministry. And uh, my wife and I, Nikki and I, are in that group. And one of the implications, I think, as well, as we think about this physical aspect of God's lavish and gracious provision, is to consider how do we respond to those who find themselves in such need? I mean, one of the things we see in our text is that there's a real physical need here, right, that the people have. There's 4,000 people. They don't have anything to eat. And what is Jesus' response to them? The text says he has compassion for them, right? And His compassion is not only shown in that He teaches them, but He provides for their physical need. And one of the things as the church of Jesus Christ that we can draw from this passage as well is not only, God, not only is God calling us to trust Him for His provision, but also to be willing to be the means of His provision for others so Christ would have us to have a, a similar heart, to have compassion to move towards those in need and to provide for them to be an extension of God's lavish provision as He provides through us. This also has spiritual implications as well as we think about Christ and His lavish provision. You might remember if you were here, and if not, then I'll, I'll catch you up, but if you were here for the sermon that we considered on the feeding of the 5,000, You might remember that Jesus revealed that the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 contained a deeper spiritual truth. We see this particularly in the Gospel of John. So in John's Gospel, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, in John chapter 6 we read, this is what Jesus says, "...I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven." so that one may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give for the life uh, and the bread that i will give for the life of the world is my flesh now what is jesus talking about there uh, some maybe if you've heard that for the first time you're like okay what is what does that mean Well, Jesus is pointing to the reality that the physical bread that he is providing them with is symbolic of a greater reality, which is that his own body will be broken, which in the Lord's Supper he says, this is symbolic of my body as he gives them the bread. This is symbolic of my body that will be broken on your behalf. And the the cup at the Lord's Supper is the symbolic of the blood that will be shed on his behalf. But here he's focusing particularly on the reality of His body which will be broken on their behalf for their sins so that they might live and be forgiven. Let me say at this point that the sin, as we're thinking about God's lavish provision and how it applies spiritually, the sin of not trusting in the lavish provision of God will damn many. I know that's a strong statement. But this is what the Scriptures point us to. The the unbelief, not trusting in the lavish provision of God's grace will damn many. Let me explain. Many conclude that Jesus died on the cross to give us an example to follow, or a jump start, you might say, morally, right? So, So Jesus died on the cross, and the reason He died on the cross is Because He wanted to give us an example of love, and now we are to follow that example of love. And as we see Him sacrificing Himself for us, we get a sense of what it means to love someone else. And then we get on with it, and we become more moral and good people and loving people. And that is, in one sense, true. Or some people look at the cross of Jesus and they think, well, when Jesus died on the cross, essentially what was happening there was that Jesus was making a down payment for our salvation he died on the cross, and He paid a penalty for our sins. But now, we've got to make payments. We've got to kind of make payments with interest. You know, be good people, and do good things, and that sort of thing. And if we do enough of that, then finally, finally, we will eventually get there, and we'll make it, and God will accept us and forgive us. Now listen, you you may have that understanding of the gospel, but... But listen, my friends, understand, that is not only a different gospel, but the Scriptures tell us that is no gospel at all. When Jesus says that He is the bread of life and that His body is broken, His body is given at the cross so that He takes our sins on His behalf and He takes our punishment and our judgment and He offers Himself as a sacrifice of sin he wants you to know, and the gospel declares, that what He is doing in that act is not just providing the potential for you to be forgiven, but He is making a provision for all your sins in His death so that the forgiveness of your sins is absolutely secured past, present, and future. It doesn't just give a It doesn't just give the potential for you to experience spiritual life and eternal life, but His death and broken body and shed blood secures your spiritual and eternal life. The provision is absolutely lavish and extravagant. But here's the deal. You only get it if you receive it that way. If you trust in it, and that alone for your salvation. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. To trust that His redemptive work on your behalf is enough. That it's more than enough. And so we see here in our text the lavish provision, both physically and spiritually, of the Lord Jesus. Now the third and final point I want us to consider this morning is that Jesus contends for our faith. Now look there in verses 11 to 21 and we read these these words. Verses 11 to 21. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Now notice here how Jesus is contending for the disciples' faith. Uh, there's three just quick quick points I want to make here as Jesus contends for their faith. First of all, He contends for their faith with a warning. With a warning. You see it there. Despite Jesus' teaching and many miraculous works, the Pharisees in the text, they demand a sign from Jesus to prove that He's the real deal, that He is who He says He is. In Matthew's Gospel, actually, Jesus responds by adding this, An an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We know from the Scriptures that the sign of Jonah was was the resurrection of Jesus. As Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus would be in the belly of the earth three days and then rise from the grave. And so then Jesus, as the Pharisees, now they've demanded a sign. Jesus says, you will not receive a sign, this wicked and adulterous generation, except the sign of Jonah pointing to his own resurrection. He gets into the boat with his disciples and he says to them in verse 15, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is fermented yeast, it causes dough to rise. And in the Bible, leaven is symbolic of an imperceptible and unseen but pervasive spread of corruption or evil. Okay, so that's what leaven symbolizes. It's unseen but it's a pervasive spread of corruption or evil. And so Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees who have just asked for a sign and Herod, that it would leaven in their own hearts. He warns them of that. Now what was the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? I mean this is somewhat of a tough question to answer but but, but what was it that the Pharisees and Herod had in common? Because they were very different people in many ways. The Pharisees were religious and they were Jewish. Herod, on the other, on the other hand, was essentially a pagan king. So, so what did they have in common? And, and what the Pharisees and what Herod had in common was unbelief. Neither of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so notice what Jesus is saying here. As Jesus, the Pharisees demand... A sign, right? And Jesus leaves the, the coast there, the shore, and he's in the boat with the disciples. But what Jesus is pointing to is that in leaving the shore, he has not left unbelief behind him, but actually unbelief still resides in the boat with him. It's in the heart of his disciples. And he is warning them He is warning them of the deceptive and dangerous influences of Herod and the Pharisees, which can seep into their hearts and result in unbelief. They are, in fact, struggling with unbelief, right? We've seen this in the feeding of the 4,000. Now, one thing I think we can draw from this is that there are some folks who are always demanding that God prove Himself Or that Jesus provides some incontrovertible evidence that He is who He said He was. And He will do what He says He will do. Some, we recognize, possess an incurable distrust and skepticism. And I believe Jesus would admonish us to not be swayed by their relentless unbelief. We're reminded, in fact, we're reminded of the parable of Uh, Lazarus and the rich man. uh, In the parable, Lazarus is in heaven and the rich man is in hell. And Jesus tells us that the rich man pleads that he could come back to the world and warn his loved ones of the danger of judgment which is to come after this life. And do you remember the response that the rich man gets as he is experiencing his own judgment? The response he gets is that if, the rich man is told if, Those who are still living, if they have the Scriptures and they still don't believe, even if someone were to be raised from the dead, they would not believe. And that was a prophetic word, wasn't it? Because even when Jesus was raised from the dead, the sign of Jonah, right? Even when Jesus was raised from the dead, there were many who were not persuaded of their incurable distrust and skepticism. And so Jesus warns His disciples, as they themselves are struggling with unbelief, beware, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and and Herod, their incurable unbelief that will seep into your own heart and spread distrust. The, The second way that He contends for their faith is through probing questions, probing questions. So you notice here that Jesus, as He's in the boat with His disciples, He asks them seven probing questions. He follows this warning with seven questions. In particular, in verse 17, He says, Do you not yet perceive or understand? And then again in verse 21, He says, Do you not yet understand? In other words, Jesus is pressing them to think, to reason, so that they might understand, and as a result, they might believe. You know, some believe that the Christian faith is just a matter of blind faith. It's a leap in the dark. If you want to follow Jesus, then you got to check your mind at the door. You've heard such claims and accusations. If you believe, then you have to follow Jesus without thinking or reasoning or for any rational basis or evidence for doing so. But listen, my friends, we don't have time to pursue this to a great extent this morning, but that is clearly contrary to what Jesus taught. Jesus regularly called folks to consider, to reason, to understand, to think, because faith is consistent with rational thought. So, He warns them. He asks them probing questions. And then third, to contend for their faith, He calls them to remember. He calls them to remember. In verse 18, we read, Do you not remember? Now, you remember those critical scholars at the beginning that we talked about who said that this is psychologically impossible, right? That the disciples would see the feeding of the 5,000 and then the the situation of the 4,000, they'd be desperate and they would panic. This here is the answer to their question. The the answer to their, their concern about this being psychologically impossible is that, in fact, it is tragically probable. And one of the reasons we know it's tragically probable is because the Scriptures over and over and over and over again call us to remember. And why? Because we are so prone to forget. You see it there in verses 19 and 20. He, uh, Jesus says, When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. He's calling them to remember. Remember? Verse 20, and seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. Again, he's calling them to remember. Remember God's provision. Remember God's grace. Remember his promises. Again, in the Lord's table that Jesus will institute for them, what is the command as we gather together to take the Lord's table, which actually we'll be doing next Sunday, when we take the bread and when we take the cup? It is to remember Remember what Christ has done for us as He's offered His body and offered His blood so that we might be forgiven and received by Him. You say, well, how could we forget, right? I mean, how could we forget such an amazing and significant event? Oh, my friends, you will. I can be singing on Sunday morning the promises of the gospel and encouraged by the promises of the gospel and the word and by the afternoon be ransacked with guilt and discouragement. And that's why we need to hear over and over again the exhortation from Jesus, Remember, remember, my body was broken for you. My blood was spilt for you. I am for you. I am with you. And you are mine. In these ways, Jesus is graciously caring for the disciples. As they are struggling with unbelief, Jesus warns them, He asks them probing questions. He calls them to remember so that their faith might be strengthened. My friends, saving faith is real, but saving faith is imperfect. And in our fight to believe and to trust in Christ, it is so encouraging to know that Jesus contends for our faith with warnings, with questions, with calls to remember, and oftentimes oftentimes He matches our surprising unbelief with lavish provision and grace. Let's go to Him in prayer. God, we thank You and praise You so much for Your grace and for Your mercy. We thank You for uh, the mercy and grace that You have shown us in christ lord we recognize that your provision does always does not always come to us exactly the way we want it to oftentimes we have to wait longer than we want or it's not as miraculous as we had hoped or we don't receive all that we had hoped to receive particularly thinking about physical challenges that we might face Oh, but Lord, I thank you for your word that calls us based upon your character, based upon your past faithfulness, to believe your promise. To know that you always hold out for us more grace, more provision, all that we need, in fact, even more than we need. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look to you in faith. I pray that even through studying this passage this morning, our faith would be encouraged. And then, Lord, I pray for those who might be here this morning who perhaps even for some time, have been struggling to truly believe in Jesus and follow Him. But God, by Your grace, do that work in their hearts now. Grant them the gift of faith. I pray that this, even now in these moments, would be the first time that they choose to trust Christ and follow Him with all their lives. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.